Welcome to the third season of Murder in 20 podcast, where I, Bobby Stevens, am your host with a new episode every Wednesday. If you're a serious fan of true crime and love listening to podcasts, but don't want all that small talk, you've come to the right place. We get right to the facts. Murder in 20 episodes are concise and complete in 20 minutes. Less talk and more true crime. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. Nestled on the southern tip of Vancouver Island is British Columbia's capital city of Victoria. Steeped in history, it began as a coal town. Today, it is known as a city of gardens and is visited by millions of tourists every year. Twenty minutes from downtown lays a sprawling suburb of Saanich, a place where houses sit on large lots and there's space to breathe. Lindsay Buziak was born and raised by her parents in Saanich, along with her sister Sarah. Lindsay was beautiful, with long flowing dark hair and had a smile that lit up her room. She was driven and ambitious, her zest for life contagious. Lindsay's father was a realtor, and she followed in his footsteps. Outgoing, smart, and social, she was a natural fit. Dateline's episode, The Dream House Mystery, reported that around 2001, Lindsay fell in love with Matt McDuff. But in 2006, after five years together, the couple broke up. Lindsay then met Jason Zalo when they attended a realtor course and they began dating. As a licensed realtor, she went to work at a local brokerage, the same one where Jason worked and was owned by his mother, Shirley. Jason's mother bought a condo just across the bridge from downtown in an area that stretches along the inner harbor. Jason and Lindsay moved into the condo. In the fall of 2008, Lindsay celebrated her birthday. Things were going well for her. She was on track with her career and contemplating making some changes in her personal life. Meanwhile, in nearby Vancouver, a large city on the mainland, located just across the water from Victoria, Someone, using the name Paula Rodriguez, purchased a prepaid disposable cell phone. In December, Lindsay traveled to visit her father, who was now living in Calgary, Alberta. She was still living with Jason, but couldn't get mad off her mind. She confided that she was thinking about leaving Jason and getting back together with Matt. During her four-day visit, Lindsay took the time to socialize and met with some of her old friends. What Lindsay didn't know at the time is that one of those friends was under surveillance for drug trafficking, which was linked to organized crime. CBC News reported that the undercover sting was called Operation High Noon. A month later, on January 6, 2008, that disposable cell phone in Vancouver 
was activated. Buying and selling real estate typically slows down during the busy rush of the Christmas season. So two days later, Lindsay was pleasantly surprised to get a cold call from a woman in Vancouver saying that her husband had been transferred to Victoria and they needed to buy a house within two days. As the woman spoke, she noted that the caller's thick accent sounded Spanish or Mexican. The woman listed their needs. The house must be new, vacant, and move-in ready, with three bedrooms and three baths, with separate accommodations for a housekeeper, and the best part, they had a million dollars to spend. Lindsay was excited, but skeptical at the same time. She was relatively new in the office, and usually a buyer of that caliber would go through a more experienced agent. And the call didn't come through the office number, rather directly to her cell phone, which wasn't listed. So Lindsay asked the caller how she got her number, and she replied that she'd been referred by a previous client. The Capital Daily reported that afterwards, Lindy called around to her clients to inquire about the referral, but none of them knew anything about it. Lindsay's instincts were tingling, and she mentioned the call to Jason. He too was a little suspicious, so he offered to accompany her, but Lindsay was independent and made the decision to handle it on her own. To reassure her, he reminded her of another sale for a similar amount that she'd recently handled with an out-of-town buyer that ended in a sale. The woman called Lindsay ten more times. On Friday, February 1st, Lindsay poured through listings and emailed her new client a couple of houses that were new and vacant. Her first showing would be a brand new house at 1702 D'Souza Place. It was a listing held by Jason's mother and the brokerage she worked at. She contacted the builder and arranged the showing for Saturday at 5.30 p.m. The house was located in an area called Gordon Head, 15 minutes from downtown. The two-story traditional house had five bedrooms and four bathrooms and was listed for $964,000. Her client confirmed she and her husband would be flying over the next afternoon. But Lindsay still felt uneasy. So Saturday morning, she stopped by the real estate office and asked a co-worker to check their records for the phone number. Nothing was found. That afternoon, the builder ensured the house was cleaned and spotless. Lindsay and Jason met for a late lunch at a restaurant downtown. He offered to show the house for her, but Lindsay declined. And at 4.30 p.m., the couple parted ways. Lindsay headed out to change her clothes for the appointment. While Jason had plans to stop by a business nearby to present an offer on one of Lindsay's listings. When he arrived at the business, Jason received a text from Lindsay, saying she was on her way to the house. He offered to meet her there to deliver the paperwork 
and make sure she was okay. Lindsay agreed, but said she would do the showing by herself. Lindsay parked her black BMW in the driveway. Just off the main road, it was on a small cul-de-sac with only a few other houses that were still under construction. Meanwhile, Jason waited for his friend Cohen to meet him as they had plans to go out for dinner after he met with Lindsay. Cohen arrived, parked his car, and they headed off in Jason's Range Rover. Jason attempted to use his vehicle's navigation to find the address, but it couldn't locate it. So at 5.30 p.m., he called Lindsay. She answered, then abruptly told him, Oh, I've got to go. They're here. Lindsay texted Jason the address, and he replied he was on his way. But Lindsay never saw his text. The client and her husband arrived on foot. The woman appeared to be 35 to 45 years old, with short blonde hair, and was wearing a distinctive dress with vertical wavy stripes in black, red, and white. The man was Caucasian, six feet tall, a medium build with dark hair and wearing a long brown jacket. Lindsay introduced herself and shook their hands. She opened the lockbox, retrieved the key, and unlocked the front door. Entering through the stately front door with etched glass and flanked by two side windows, she led them into the tiled entryway where she kicked off her shoes. They toured the first floor, then headed upstairs and entered the master bedroom. Lindsay was attacked from behind. A knife thrust into her small frame, over and over. She was stabbed dozens of times in her head and chest. She fell to the floor. Her blood quickly pooled around her. Her cell phone pocket-dialed a friend, but they didn't pick up. It was 5.41 p.m. Lindsay was dead at 24. Jason and Cohen pulled into the cul-de-sac at 5.45 p.m. Jason caught a glimpse of a male figure through one of the windows of the front door. The attackers heard his car pull up and looked for another way out. At the side of the house, they opened a door and escaped through the fence on to another street. Jason didn't want to interrupt Lindsay and her clients, so he and Cohen waited and watched. After 10 minutes, it was nearing 6 p.m., so Jason got out and walked up to the house. He reached down and pressed a latch on the front door, expecting it to open, but it was locked. Then he rang the doorbell. He rang it again and again. With concern mounting, Jason and Cohen walked around to the back of the house, looking for another entrance. At 6.05 p.m., Jason dialed 911 and reported that Lindsay's car was in the driveway. 
He could see her shoes through the window, but the door was locked. Police were dispatched. After hanging up, Jason and Cohen walked to the side of the house and noticed an enclosed patio and could see the door was open. Now they were in panic mode. Physically fit Jason helped Cohen over the fence. He raced through the house and unlocked the front door. Jason immediately saw bloody footprints. Cohen took off to search the first floor while Jason flew upstairs. He screamed out for Cohen to call 911 and bent down, felt for a pulse, and attempted CPR. He could hear the sirens wailing. But he knew it was too late. Paramedics and police responded. Tracking dogs were brought in, but the site had quickly become contaminated with first responders and they couldn't find a scent. Jason was taken to the police station and questioned. Investigators searched the house and collected hairs, fibers, blood splatter, and DNA evidence. They quickly ran the client's phone number and discovered the name was a fake. Through cell towers, they could see the phone traveled on the ferry to Victoria. They managed to locate the address provided when the cell phone was purchased, and although it was legitimate, it had nothing to do with the phone or the person who purchased it. The phone went silent. It had been used to call Lindsay, and only Lindsay. Witnesses came forward, describing a middle-aged couple, and they all focused on that unusual dress. Jason voluntarily turned over Lindsay's laptop to investigators. They delved into her social media accounts and noticed a change in her usual patterns. All Lindsay's messages in the two weeks before her death had been deleted, but they couldn't determine when. Amongst her 700 Facebook friends, investigators quickly noticed that there were violent criminals, ones involved in the illegal distribution of drugs. A further investigation determined that Lindsay herself was not involved in any such activities. Lindsay's case went cold. Over the next year, Five full-time investigators continued to work on it. They executed 30 search warrants, received 752 tips, and conducted 1,471 interviews. A year after Lindsay's murder, Saanich police released a composite drawing of the woman's dress and a side profile of her face in the hopes it would generate new leads and they publicly cleared Jason as a suspect. In June 2009, it had been six months since Lindsay's murder, when the police sting that had been tracking large amounts of cocaine being transported from BC to Alberta resulted in her friend being arrested and charged 
in the biggest cocaine drug seizure in Alberta's history. Police investigated as to whether perhaps Lindsay saw something she shouldn't have, or perhaps she was a police informant. But investigators later ruled out both possibilities. In the summer of 2017, nine years after her murder, an eerie post appeared on a website dedicated to finding Lindy's killer. The National Post reported that in part it said, I killed Lindsay, and stupid cops will never prove it. So you all got nothing. No one gives a shit anymore, anyhow, except her crybaby dad. Even her fakie girlfriends have washed it away. Typical loser chicks. Sandwich cops dropped it because they can't solve shit and were told to drop it. Cut the phony investigation. It's done. Go home, losers. Forget about her. The street always rules. Bitches die every day. Police investigated the message but the writer didn't reveal any new information, and it remains unknown if the writer is really her killer or simply an internet troll. In February 2021, CTV News reported that a new task force had been formed that included the RCMP and the United States FBI, and that they would be taking a fresh look at Lindsay's murder Police stated that there had been movement in her case, and they believed that someone in the community may finally be ready to come forward, and that new technology had highlighted forensic evidence, and that they would be talking to possible suspects. Police believe Lindsay was lured into a trap, one that began months before her murder. It has been suggested in the media that it was a professional hit, but then it's questioned that a contract killer wouldn't have used an accomplice, and that many stab wounds points to it being personal. Lindsay's father, Jeff, believes that someone in Victoria knows what happened, and that her killer is someone Lindsay knew. He has remained a crusader, to get justice for his daughter. Every year on the anniversary of her death, he travels from Calgary to Victoria and holds a walk in her memory. Often as the rain drizzles down on an overcast cold day, he is joined by Lindsay's friends and people in the community as they walk from Saanich's Municipal Hall to the BC Legislature in the hopes of bringing awareness to her case and that someone out there who knows something will finally tell someone. Although this episode was fully researched, living on Vancouver Island, I could have written it with my eyes closed. Fully entrenched over the years in all the details, from the shock of the murder to the feeling that it is solvable. This is Murder in 20's first unsolved episode, where the murder has not been caught. Yet. This week 
is the 15th anniversary of Lindsay's murder. We are hopeful that one day we can update this podcast with justice for Lindsay. Thanks for listening to Murder in 20 with Let's Talk and More True Crime. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of Ron Rudin. Amongst the neon lights, Ron built a real estate empire worth millions. Margaret thought about divorce, but decided she could wait until he was six feet under. But should Ron die, he made sure his will would name his killer. If you're dying to hear more, past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murderin20.com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or murderin20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Purple Planet for use of their music sound effect from Vaseline Studios and Quick Sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers. <laughs>